Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Today's sermon, while not directly about the Holy Spirit, is about the book or the collection of books that the Holy Spirit inspired. And that, of course, would be the Bible. And so I'll remind us that we are currently engaged in a sermon series here at Asbury called What Does the Bible Say? Um, In these messages, we have been testing popular cliches against the teachings of Scripture in order to determine if these cliches have any merit, any truth. So far in these messages, we have looked at three cliches. How many? Three cliches so far. First, everything happens for a reason. Second, God helps those who help themselves. Um, Third, God won't give you more than you can handle. And so that brings us this morning to our fourth cliche. It's up here. Let's say it together. One, two, three, go. God said it. I believe it, that settles it. Or some people say, God said it, I believe it, that ends it. Doesn't leave room for very much conversation, does it? Uh, let me say, before I go any further, that if, any, if at any point this morning you find yourself questioning, wondering about, or even disagreeing with something that I say, that's okay. I welcome that. I would simply ask that you would hold out judgment until the very end of the sermon. And then afterwards, if you would like to sit down and talk with me, uh, we can certainly set up a time to do that. Sound fair to you? God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Uh, Pastor Adam Hamilton, in his book, Half Truths, we've derived some of the content for the sermon series from that book, Half Truths. Well, in that book, Adam Hamilton points out that when Christians generally say this cliche, what they're talking about is the Bible. And what they mean is, if the Bible says something, even if I personally disagree with it, I don't like it, I don't care for it, it doesn't matter. Because God is the one who said it, God is the one who spoke it, and who am I as a human being to question Almighty God? God said it, I believe it, That settles it. Now, on the surface, this sounds like a good statement, doesn't it? It feels right. It feels fitting. It feels appropriate to say because as Christians, we want to affirm the authority of Scripture, don't we? We want people to know that we bend our lives to God's truth as we find it in the Bible, that we listen to the Bible that we take the Bible seriously, that we take the Bible more seriously than we take ourselves. On the other hand, the problem with this statement, this cliche, is it simply doesn't reflect the way most of us use the Bible in our lives. The Bible's more complicated than that. When I was a student in college, I knew a young man, not John, this was somebody else, But I knew a young man who wanted to get a tattoo. 
Uh, he had had a profound experience of God's love. Uh, God had worked a great transformation in his life. And so as a way of signaling his belonging to God, he wanted to get a tattoo. Now, not just any tattoo. He wanted to get a tattoo of a cross. Well, he announced this to some people, and somebody came up to him and said, how can you do this? How can you get a tattoo? Don't you know that the Bible says tattoos are wrong? Now, to be fair, the person who said this was correct. Listen with me to what it says here in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Leviticus is the third book of the Bible. You start with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. This is what it says in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28. Do not mark your skin with tattoos. I am the Lord. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Hold on a second. It also says in the same chapter in Leviticus, chapter 19, we're going to be consistent, aren't we? It says in the same chapter that men shouldn't get a haircut or trim their beard. It says that we shouldn't wear clothes with mixed fibers. Anybody wearing clothes right now with mixed fibers? It says we shouldn't, we shouldn't sow two kinds of seed in the same field. I sure hope our community garden on our campus is in compliance with that. It says in Jewish law, Old Testament law, that we can't eat lobster or shrimp because these things are shellfish. Shellfish is considered unclean. It also says that we shouldn't eat pork because pork is considered unclean. So I guess we should cancel hot dogs by the lake from now on or at least make sure that all of our hot dogs are kosher. And I certainly hope that none of us are planning to have barbecue ribs this Memorial Day weekend or planning to toss a football outside in the front yard or in the backyard. Now, I want to be clear about something. We are not under Old Testament law, according to the New Testament. Old Testament law has been fulfilled through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. However, Old Testament law is still a part of the Bible. So the cliche, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, isn't so cut and dry. And by the way, while we're talking about unusual passages from the Old Testament, check out this one from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 12 through 14. You must have a designated area outside the camp where you can go to relieve yourself. Now, what on earth is the writer talking about there? I think we all know. Each of you, and this is actually God speaking to the Israelites through Moses, each of you must have a spade as part of your equipment. Whenever you relieve yourself, dig a hole with the spade and cover the excrement. The camp must be holy, for the Lord your God moves around you in your camp to protect you and to defeat your enemies. He must not see any shameful thing among you, or he will turn away from you. By show of hands, how many of you have ever heard a sermon on this passage? None of you? Well, guess what? Today is your day. The funny thing is, if you had lived 140 years ago, in the 1880s, there is a strong possibility that you would have heard a sermon on this passage. Now, wait a minute. What was going on in this country in the 1880s 
that would have led pastors like me to stand up in a pulpit and preach a sermon on this text? Say it out loud. Exactly. It was the advent of indoor plumbing. For the longest time, where did people in this country use the restroom? In an outhouse. And of course, people around the world continue to use the restroom in an outhouse, depending on where you go. But as indoor plumbing with the Industrial Revolution, as indoor plumbing was becoming more standard, as indoor plumbing was becoming the norm, there were Christians who genuinely wondered, this was all so new to them, they genuinely wondered if it was appropriate to have indoor plumbing in a church building. Because that would basically mean you would be answering nature's call in a church. And there was just something about going to the bathroom in a church in a place designed for the worship of God, set apart for the worship of God, consecrated for the worship of God that seemed disrespectful. And so there were Christians, preachers, who used this text from Deuteronomy to argue against indoor plumbing, saying that if we had it, God would be upset, God would be offended, and God wouldn't bless us. Nowadays, hardly any of us, probably none of us, would use this passage from Deuteronomy in this kind of way, but Christians did 140 years ago. And so the problem with the cliche, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, it doesn't reflect the way most of us use the Bible in our lives. And if we're honest, we don't want to use the Bible in this way. There are passages in the Old Testament that say you should be put to death for doing things like working on the Sabbath. There's actually a story in the Old Testament about a man being executed for working on the Sabbath. There are passages that say you should be put to death for cursing your parents. Nobody's ever done that, right? Certainly not when you were a teenager. There are also passages that talk about doing horrific things to the children of one's enemies. For example, this is from Psalm chapter 137, verses 8 through 9. I imagine that none of us have heard a sermon on this before. O Babylon, you will be destroyed. Happy is the one who pays you back for what you have done to us. Happy is the one who takes your babies and smashes them against the rocks. I promise we're going to revisit that psalm toward the end of the sermon. So I just ask that you hold on to it for now. And by the way, lest we think that there are only difficult passages in the Old Testament, so often people will say, well, all those tough passages, they're just in the Old Testament. No. There are difficult passages in the New Testament too. For example, in Colossians and in Ephesians and in 1 Peter, it tells people who are enslaved that they need to submit to their slave owners. So does that mean that the Bible somehow endorses slavery? I don't believe so. But there have been Christians over the years who have argued so. When I was a student in seminary, I took a class on American Christianity. One of our assignments, and this was probably the hardest assignment I had, not just in that class, but in all of seminary, was to read sermons from Southern preachers just before the Civil War who used the Bible to advocate for slavery. Anybody here ever seen the movie 12 Years a Slave? It's a real powerful movie. It's a difficult movie to watch. There's a scene in that movie 12 Years a Slave 
where a plantation owner is quoting the Bible to encourage those who are enslaved to be docile and submissive. And then as he ends his message, he holds up the Bible in front of everybody, and he says, that's Scripture. God have mercy. Passages dealing with slavery are difficult. Passages dealing with the role of women is difficult too. For instance, this is from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. I'm assuming that nobody's wearing jewelry right now. If we are, the ushers are going to come forward, collect those things, we'll sell them, we'll use the money to fund our operational budget. Amen? God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Let's read on in 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is verses 11 and 12. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. Do we have any female Sunday school teachers this morning who are leading their classes? Just one more. This is from 1 Corinthians 14. Women should be silent during the church meetings. It is not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive, just as the law says. If they have any questions, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for women to speak in church meetings. No wonder the Apostle Paul was single. <laughs> he would have gotten in trouble, right? Seriously, though, were we going against this passage when we had Alina giving the announcements or leading us in the pastoral prayer? What are we to do with these texts? Are we to conclude that the Apostle Paul who authored them just was dismissive of women and didn't care for their gifts? No! Please, let's not do that. Some people want to. I would say don't do that. Because if we go to other parts of the New Testament, we find passages where Paul is extremely supportive of women and their gifts. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, just three chapters earlier, Paul talks about women being able to prophesy. What does it mean to prophesy? Well, it means to speak a message inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, God gives you a message, and you speak that message to God's people to edify them, to encourage them, to inspire them. Paul talks about women in 1 Corinthians 11 being able to prophesy of all places in church meetings. In Romans and in Philippians, Paul describes women as being co-laborers with him and the gospel of Jesus. He doesn't describe them as assistants. He doesn't say, hey, they were two steps behind me. No, he calls them co-laborers with himself. And then in Galatians 3, Paul delivers what is perhaps the most inclusive and radical line of the entire New Testament. Galatians 3, verse 28, it says, There is no longer Jew or Gentile. Slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I share all this simply to say that the cliche, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, while well-intentioned, no doubt about it, is overly simplistic. It simply does not reflect the way that most of us use the Bible in our lives. It does not account for the diversity and the complexity of Scripture 
and it completely overlooks the process of interpretation. All of us interpret the Bible. All of us do. And if we all agreed on our interpretation, we wouldn't have as many denominations as we do, not just in this country, but around the world. Yes, the Bible is inspired by God. There is no question about that. I fully believe this in the core of who I am, that as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is God-breathed, all Scripture is God-inspired. But what does this mean? Does this mean that the writers of the Bible were in a trance as the Holy Spirit was inspiring them? No, they wrote with their own personalities. They wrote with their own historical and cultural inflections. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't listen to what they said. We should absolutely listen to what they said. There is no higher authority for us than the Bible. But we have to interpret what they said in a responsible and faithful way. So how do we do this? How do we interpret what the writers of the Bible said in a responsible and faithful way? I want to shift gears and talk about this for a few moments. There are a lot of different ways that we do this, but what I want to do is I want to highlight in this message just four of them. Four ways that we as Christians interpret the Bible responsibly and faithfully. The first one is this, number one, look at the whole written context. What comes before a passage, what comes after a passage, and how all this relates to the overall message. Dr. Ben Witherington, he's a professor at Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmar, Kentucky. He has this great line where he says, a text, and he's talking about the Bible here, he says a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. Don't rip a verse out of context. Otherwise, you're going to miss the point of what the writer is communicating. So to give an example of this, in Ephesians chapter 5, Verse 22, the Apostle Paul says, Wives, be submissive to your husbands as unto the Lord. Are you familiar with that verse? Well, some people read that verse and they say, Okay, that means that wives have to submit to their husbands and do whatever their husbands tell them to do. And yet, one verse earlier, this is what Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 21. And further, Submit to who? One another out of reverence for Christ. This is Paul's opening statement, which means that everything that he says next is an extension of this statement, which means it's not simply about wives submitting to their husbands. It's also about husbands submitting to their wives. There is mutual submission in marriage as in any healthy relationship. So look at the whole written context. And that leads us to the second one. In addition to the written context, account for the historical and cultural context. In other words, what was happening when this passage was composed? And so, for example, we talked about Psalm 137, where the psalmist talks about taking children and smashing them against the rocks, the children of one's enemies. Well, we have to understand what was going on historically when this psalm was composed. This psalm was composed uh, during the Babylonian exile. What had happened around 586 B.C. 
is the Babylonian armies had come into Jerusalem and completely leveled the city, destroyed the temple that King Solomon had built, just completely destroyed it, and then took the strongest and most able-bodied Jewish people into exile away from their homeland. In the beginning of the psalm, the psalmist says, by the rivers of Babylon where we sat down and there we wept, we remembered Zion. We remember this place that we used to call home where we believed the presence of God actually dwelt. This was a horrific event. Think of how bad Pearl Harbor was for us as Americans. Or think about how bad 9-11 was for us as a nation. This was a terrible event that had happened to the Israelites. And so understanding this event helps us to better comprehend the intense anger behind the psalmist's words. All of us say things that are really hard when we're angry, don't we? It doesn't mean that we go along with what the psalmist is saying, but we can better understand what led him to say it, why he was so upset. So, in addition to the written context, account for the historical, the cultural context, and then number three, interpret Scripture with Scripture. There is no higher authority for us than the Bible, so when interpreting the Bible, look to other parts of the Bible. So, for example, it says in 1 Timothy 2 that women shouldn't teach or have authority over men, but in other parts of the Bible, we find women doing just that. We find women teaching and having authority over men. Remember Deborah, who was a judge over the people of Israel? She led God's people into battle against their enemies. She helped the Israelites to be victorious. Or remember Mary Magdalene? Mary Magdalene was the first person to preach about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. She told the disciples about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or what about Junia, who was a female apostle? Or what about Priscilla, who was a companion of the apostle Paul and a leader in the first century church? So don't just look at one part of the Bible. Let the Bible as a whole speak to you. There are other methods when it comes to reading and interpreting Scripture faithfully, but as we end this sermon, I want to leave us with just one more. And in my conviction, this one is the most important. Word. The Apostle John, my favorite writer of the New Testament, captures this truth so beautifully in the opening of his gospel. This is John 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, the Word, and when John says the Word, he's talking about Jesus. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word, Jesus, gave life to everything that was created. And his life brought light to everyone. And then in verse 14, uh, John says this, So the Word became human and made his home among us. When God chose to reveal himself to humanity in the most definitive way, he came to us in real flesh and real blood. As the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Paul also says in Colossians 1 that in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The entirety of God was pleased to dwell. In Hebrews, the writer says that in the former days, God spoke through the prophets, but in these final days, God has spoken through his Son. 
Jesus is the definitive word of God. And so with this in mind, whatever we encounter in Scripture, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, whatever we encounter, we seek to understand it through the lens of God's revelation in Jesus. So in Psalm 137, where the psalmist talks about smashing children against the rocks, the children of one's enemies, well, yeah, we remember the historical and the cultural context, the Babylonian exile and all that stuff. But we also remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about how we are to deal with our enemies. What are we to do? Love them. Pray for those who persecute you. It doesn't mean that other parts of Scripture don't have value. Yes, they have value. It doesn't mean that they're not important. Yes, they're important. But everything needs to be read and understood through the lens of Jesus Christ. God's definitive word. Folks, I love the Bible. I absolutely love the Bible. I read it every day. I've memorized parts of it. I intend to continue to memorize more for as long as I am able. I love the way the Bible challenges me. I love the way the Bible encourages me. I love the way the Bible inspires me. But here's what I love most about the Bible. What I love most about the Bible, God's Word, is how it brings us to Jesus. It brings us to Jesus. It contains Jesus. Uh, when our twins, Hannah and Noah, were born, uh, they came earlier than we had expected. 32 weeks in gestation. And so because they came so early, about two months early, they had to spend a whole month in the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit at Nemours Hospital in the Lake Nona area. Well, I remember one time a man and I were in the room and we were holding Hannah and Noah and we were doing what they call kangaroo time. You know what kangaroo time is where you hold the child, uh, their skin up against your skin. It's very intimate, a great time of, of bonding. Well, as we were holding Hannah and Noah in this kangaroo way, there was this woman who came in the room. She had a guitar with her. And she said, I'm a music therapist here at the hospital. I would love to sing to your children. We said, great. And so she started to sing while playing the guitar. She sang children's songs like, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. The wheels on the bus go round and round. As an aside, I never realized how long that song is. The wheels on the bus go round and round. It lasted for like six minutes. Well, finally, I said to her, do you know any Bible songs? And she said, I'm not sure. Well, tell me one. Tell me the name of a Bible song you would like me to sing. I said, well, what about Jesus Loves Me, This I Know? And she said, I know that song. And so she started to sing it as we were holding our children, our newborns. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Why? For the Bible tells me so. So simple, 
so profound. The Bible brings us to Jesus. We know that Jesus loves us because the Bible tells us he loves us. I love how Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, put it. He said this, the Bible is the manger which carries the Christ. Listen, if you are here today and you have never read the Bible before for yourself, I hope that this sermon will encourage you to do so. Using the various methods that we talked about toward the end of the message. You may not understand everything that you read. That's okay. I don't always understand everything I read. But here's what I can promise you. You will encounter Jesus when you read the Bible. And thus, you will encounter God's truth. And as Jesus himself said, it is that truth that will make you free. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you that you inspired the writers of Scripture and that all these years later, you continue to use Scripture in our lives. As the psalmist says in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Thank you that you use the Bible to instruct us, to encourage us, to inspire us, to challenge us, and to help us follow Jesus. God, I pray that for all of us here this morning, that we would continue to engage the Bible and make reading Scripture a principal part of our lives, seeking to understand it and interpret it faithfully and responsibly. We love you, God. We praise you. Thank you for all that you have done for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.